Twice Told Tales is a podcast about life and literature in the early modern period. I'm Leah Astbury, historian of medicine. And I'm Emma Clawson, and I work on French literature and thought. We're both researchers at the University of Cambridge. We decided during the pandemic to record some of the conversations we were having about our work as a podcast. In the 16th and 17th centuries, people were as interested as they are now in how to live a good life. It was a time of plague, poverty and daily hardship, but still people aspired to live well in an age before wellness. We talk about what makes a good life, then and now, looking at poetry, philosophy, medical texts, diaries and more. In each episode, we will be looking at a particular theme and bringing a text or example from our research to discuss that reflects something interesting about the early modern good life. Emma, have you been living a good life this week? I think I've been living a moderately good life, which I suppose in the early modern period is the good life, right? The moderate <laughs> life. <laughs> it hasn't felt wildly fun, but it's it's been quite good. I've been... It's been a bit more varied than than in the normal so, than yeah, usual. Yeah. yeah, so I'd say six out of ten. What about six you? Six out of ten. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's been quite overstimulating to be able to see more than one person at once. So I think it has been a, a gooder life, as it were, this week. And it's sunny today. I feel like spring is on the way. I feel like maybe there might be more hope and freedom and joy in the future. So it's been definitely been a better life week (laughs) excellent well I hope that things are going to brighten and what has made you think of the good life well our theme this week relationships and living the good life and the relationship between romantic relationships and living a good life now that we are coming out of our third fourth lockdown in the UK I've been reading about dating and lockdown which has been quite a kind of like pet interest topic for me over lockdown because I guess from the outset that you know uh coming within two meters of somebody who is not in your household has been illegal for a year so that already makes it quite difficult but I'm really interested in all of these relationships that um have popped up long distance essentially but not really, just kind of separated by a train or a short car journey. So I was reading this article in The Guardian and it said that 40% of everyone in the UK or 71% of 16 to 29 year olds do not live in a couple. So that's an awful lot of people that either are pursuing romantic relationships illegally or have had a bit of a lonely year in respect to that. So I'm hoping that people are going to be living their better romantic lives over the next um, couple of weeks and months. It's totally Um, wild, isn't it? I can't really get my head around it. There's basically been a year-long sex ban. Yeah, well, as somebody who did a tiny bit of dating during the middle of the pandemic, I can tell you that going to the park in like 12 layers is not the most fun nor romantic way to meet a prospective partner. What has made you think about The Good Life this week? Well, I haven't really done any reading that made me think about it. It's more an activity because I went back to the library, the British Library, my favourite place, for the first time in months this week. And that was brilliant. Is it actually your favourite place in the world? Uh, It's in my top five. I haven't made the official list, but I really love it. You forget that actually working 
in an environment with other people who are doing something like the same thing is just so conducive to concentration that is just not available at home in the same way I had forgotten that you know because it is possible still to be absorbed in work um, working from home but it was very nice it's not really on theme though it's not really it's not really about relationships well you say that but I have heard that the British Library is the place to uh, find romantic relationships however brief or long term I've heard that too (laughs) I'm not sure yeah so although going to the library isn't about close relationships it is about the relationships that you have with kind of society at large and with crowds or crowds at a two meter distance that I had been missing okay should we start talking about our our topic yeah let's talk about relationships in the renaissance yeah so this week we are talking about how the good life and ideas about the good life are connected with romantic relationships in particular so with ideas about sex and marriage so this is a this is a topic I really don't know about in terms of social culture. I don't really know what real marriage is like, (laughs) you know, like in the real world. I can talk about how it's written about in literature. But yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Well, this is a perfect marriage, as it were. (laughs) I mean, that's how I always feel, Leah. Um, Because I know nothing about the kind of literary perspectives on marriage. But I've spent the last year thinking about what makes a good marriage, how early modern English people thought about compatibility. And it turns out, I mean, not that dissimilarly, but I think nowadays we're perhaps more keen to let's quote unquote science do the job, you know, with dating apps and various dating apps promise to kind of offer you more compatible matches, like something like match.com or whatever that prides itself on being able to match people. But I mean, I, I suppose I started my project wondering is a compatible marriage, is a good marriage actually one in which you're similar to someone or maybe quite different from someone. But I guess it's a huge question in the period that I work on and in England, should one have a romantic relationship and how much importance in one's life should pursuing a romantic relationship be? Of course, when I say that in this period, it's all marriage. That might not be obvious, but there isn't really a framework for thinking about pursuing a romantic relationship that is not getting married. So it's a big question in England and particularly during the Reformation because one of the reasons and a key debate in the split from Rome is this question about whether or not getting married, i.e. not being celibate, is also a route to salvation. And in England, in this period, in the sort of the early 1600s, you get this real glut of conduct manuals that tell people that actually the only way to be godly is to get married and to have sex regularly, but moderately. The creation of a household is the only feasible way that they acknowledge that, yes, a more godly life would be one in which one remains chaste and just devoted oneself to God. But that is unrealistic for most people. So marriage is seen as a route to salvation and loads of kind of conduct manuals, even the the sort of liturgical sermons are kind of rewritten to promote being married and living peacefully and happily in marriage is an important route to being godly. Um, And marriage is defined as being, you know, principally to bring about children, to bridle what they call corrupt inclinations of the flesh and for perpetual friendship. So there's a very strong kind of idea of marrying somebody who is your companion and that you love and have good company with. And 
I don't think that's new to the 17th century, but it's definitely a more dominant idea that one's spouse should also be one's best friend. You know, we hear that now. But to have an unhappy marriage is very embarrassing and also brings with it the suggestion that one has been ungodly or one has sinned. Ah, interesting. And so do you, does that all stem from the re reactions to Henry VIII and his marriage and divorce? Maybe not about him, but in that context where there's this big marriage drama in the 16th century and also as part of that, there was a lot of criticism of monks and nuns for their celibate life. So does, does your 17th century material kind of derive as well from the, the drama of the break with Rome in the, in the 1530s? I guess I find less specific references to Henry VIII, but lots of references to just the unlivability of a chaste life. That is what um, sort of pamphleteers and cheap print emphasize that you might attempt to remain chaste, but it's unrealistic and therefore you will be led into greater sin. And they always accuse Catholics of bestiality, of homosexuality, of all kinds of what they term deviant sexual behavior as a result of trying to bridle the passions. And so marriage is seen as a sort of more acceptable outlet for sin. But within that, there's a real emphasis on sort of sexual pleasure as well, that pleasure is given to human beings as a sort of a sweetener for marriage and that indicates that it is a good thing right that if you can feel sexual pleasure and that's they also believe pretty essential for conception then that's important i will also say that surprising or maybe not surprisingly to you but surprisingly to me it's always surprised me how late the average age of marriage was in the 17th century in england so it's around about 28 for men and women and that's because poorer people are trying to establish themselves financially before they get married. Aristocratic families get married much, much earlier and similarly have more children because of that. But it's actually sort of not that dissimilar in some ways to the average age probably today. I don't know what that is, but it's probably around about 28, 29, 30. That is very interesting. I, yeah, I'm also surprised by that. I think there's a, a misconception then that everybody in the early modern period gets married when they're 14 and that's miserable and terrible. So this, so this advice about marriage being the best compromise and a potentially satisfying and pleasurable state, that's for everybody across the social scale. It is. But then again, you know, people lower down the socioeconomic scale are not going to be reading these texts, but they are going to be hearing that kind of thing in sermons. So yeah, and I mean, I think there's a big debate about whether or not people married for love in the past. And some older historians have said, no, you know, people always just married for kind of dynastic and economic reasons or poor people married for love, rich people married for power. And actually, you can see that when you read conduct manuals and they say like how to choose a spouse, it, what they call equality or breeding sometimes, your social status, but also the amount of money that you bring to a match is crucial in determining whether or not people are compatible. So that goes right down the social scale, which makes sense because just because you haven't got much money doesn't mean that money and status are not also important to you. Yeah, or not, you're not part of a community that has its own hierarchies. 
Yeah. And actually this idea about like equality or being a good match as an equal match or as kind of complementary, similar, similar, uh, attracting, similar, it comes across in the, in the source that um, I've chosen later, which is sort of a, 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 a failed courtship, um, an engagement that goes wrong. But I think people are very aware of needing to kind of be similar to someone in religiosity in social status in financial and, and and in this period those things become quite different your social status there's a lot of poor aristocracy who are trying to marry the daughters or or sons of merchants that are very wealthy but don't come from very sort of high status families so this is also a kind of a bigger question of the relationship between essentially I guess money and class which are separate things yeah I would love to know more about this in the French case the actual social details and the intricacies of it but I have read one really interesting book called um, The Voices of Nîmes by the historian Susanna Lipscomb who's on tv a lot oh yeah um, she is yeah, yeah. subtitle is Women, Sex and Marriage in Reformation Languedoc and what I was really struck by reading that was that if you look at marriage and the various sources, for instance, in courts when um, husbands and wives bring cases against each other, actually, um, is that you find a much more detailed picture of what equality and power actually looks like on the ground, um, which overturns a lot of preconceptions about, you know, wives always being totally dominated and marriage always being a kind of totalizing oppressive structure. That was, that was my impression from reading that book, which was really interesting. But what I have to say about relationships in the good life is, as I said at the beginning, is more um, theoretical and literary, although it does map a little bit onto what you're saying about politics and equality, because actually the idea of marriage is really important in um, early modern political theory. I've done a little bit of reading about that for my project on politics. So the husband and wife is like an analogy for the rulers of the state and the ruled. And so the social contract, though they don't talk about it in terms of the contract before the 17th century, um, but the social contract is figured as a kind of marriage. And it's it's both real marriage and theoretical marriage, if you see what I mean. So marriages within the city are important for the civic good life and for the community and for stability. But also the the, the very idea of it and the principle of I don't know, contractual unequal power um that creates a stable household that idea is a kind of analogy for the whole of politics which also shows how important gender is in in early modern thinking about politics because it's all then about about relationships between men and women so and, yeah and is that also an, an analogy i've seen it in england for the relationship between god and believers i guess do they is it the sort of the head and the body thing right that the the husband is the head and the wife is the body which I think is a super interesting analogy yeah I think so so I think that shows us how marriage is a kind of template for the good life in real and theoretical terms but in a lot of the things I'm reading sex really happens outside marriage and promiscuity and adultery are key literary themes from the kind of satirical pamphlets that attack political figures to poetry to fictional prose you know there is a sense in the material I look at that relationships are fundamentally different 
between um you know people who desire each other they're fundamentally different within the marriage structure and outside of it so last time in the episode on the body I talked about lyric poetry and that's all about extramarital desire really I mean marriage doesn't really come into it so there is this kind of vision of of sexual desire and potentially also consummation that has nothing to do with socio-political structures in the same way and it's almost as though that would be ruined <laughs> if it if it were socially permitted and ratified by you know church and state yeah I mean I will say just as a, a little aside that although the message you get from cheap and more expensive print in the period that I work on in England is that marriage is the only outlet um, for uh, sexual desire of any kind. Masturbation is also sinful. That is obviously not the reality of life. And there's one statistic that I read often by demographers that say that a quarter of all brides were pregnant on their wedding day in the 17th century in England. And there's a huge number of people having children out of wedlock, also engaging in premarital sex, extramarital sex too. So of course it is a reality that people live to. Yeah, and there's also a lot of insinuations of homosexual sexuality, which I think suggests that there was a lot of real homosexual activity in, in, in the period. And, you know, there are coded references in poetic texts and also explicit ones, usually in kind of slanderous or polemical texts i mean i think probably the most famous example at the very top of the social scale in france is the king henry iii who had lots of favorites in court and was thought to be in romantic relationships with one or several of them you know with, with his favorites so in popular discourse there is this image of the king and his many male lovers and you know there are also um, trial documents that show various kind of accusations or prosecutions of sodomy so you have the impression that a lot of sex and romance is happening outside of marriage but also outside heteronormative expectations definitely I think it's probably an important moment to say that it's very difficult to draw the boundaries around what is a romantic relationship as well and what is another kind of relationship and I think there's a lot of really interesting work done at the moment queering early modern ideas of friendship and romantic relationships and there were many people pursuing romantic relationships that, as you say did not fit into a, a heteronormative and a kind of a judeo-christian model either yeah yeah completely we decided not to talk about friendship too much today because it would just end up being here for hours. But friendship and all of its blurred ambiguities are also an important model for the good life. And I think that that is one of the arenas in which non-normative sexual desires find kind of coded outlets as well in literature. The other thing I want to say in response to what you just said is that my impression is that, you know, sex acts in history are very difficult to prove. Because all you've got is somebody's reporting of that and that might not be accurate either. Yeah, yeah. Um, or it's in a kind of a fraught legal context mm. or it's in a claim of paternity or... There's no proof that most people have had sex, right? Although I should have brought this today, but one of my favourite, favourite early modern diaries is by an 18th century wig maker called Edmund Harold. Um, and he writes in his diary... <laughs> I love it already. ...every time him and his wife have sex. And he describes it as, I had my wife. But he also, he describes where they have sex, I know, yikes, and the manner in which they have sex. Like, sweaty 
uh, on the couch. Um, but gross. He, okay, I, it is gross. But I sorry will say to that be I think it's sex negative there. No, <laughs> no. I mean, uh, he's not doing it. I think in a prurient way. I think it's that kind of impulse to record everything in one's life and he records absolutely everything but there are many other male diarists interestingly that record when particularly in almanacs and which is sort of calendars when they have sex with their wives but I think it's to do more with tracking potential conception right that's so interesting I hope one day you find a woman writing about her yeah I hope so too gosh that would be great Okay, before we move on, shall I say a little bit about literary ideas about love and marriage? I mean, I am talking mainly from a French perspective here. But just in terms of sex, marriage and the good life, I said before that um, in lyric poetry, the, the object of desire is someone that you're not married to. And there's no sense that you would marry them. And that's part of it. That's part of the pleasure of it. And ideal romantic love in the pre-modern period, as far as I understand, is often outside of marriage. So in, um, again, this is something I'm not an expert, but in you know, medieval romances, as well as in early modern poems and tales, there is much less compatibility than what you described <laughs> between passionate love, sexual fulfillment, and marriage. So, for example, Montaigne's essays discuss sex quite a lot and marriage a bit and um in his chapter on erotic poetry which is called um on some verses of virgil i think you get the the sense that he's envisaging two different kinds of good life so a, a good life that involves um sexual pleasure and your fulfilled desire whether that's through reading or through liaisons i can't believe i said liaisons that's <laughs> That's so prudish of me. Three relationships. Um, so that's one kind. And then a different kind of good life is possible in marriage, which is more about um, companionship and also about household management, you know. Um, so you can have a good house life of the household. It's a bit like the good life of the city um, with a good marriage. And that is an important version of the good life, but it's not really the same as the one that you live in kind of fantasy and desire and... Um, bodily pleasures <laughs> yeah yeah so it's quite a different approach I mean it, that is in the kind of mid to late 16th century um, Montaigne also writes really directly about how people shouldn't be ashamed of either of the act or of the desire and that it's natural and an important part of being human and an important part of the good life in general so I think we can also point to at least some early modern writers and thinkers considering that embracing one's sexuality is important in the good life in a way that is quite compatible with 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 how people think today on marriage in modern literature you know from Jane Austen onwards and maybe also before the marriage plot which is you know from meet cute to proposal that's the content of a lot of literature in prose right um and that is not true in the same way, actually, in French prose that I look at. Really? Yeah. So the way that writing about marriage deals with the possibility of the good life is less about this, you know, marriage will be the good life and then you'll live happily ever after. And it's more, you know, you read stories about how people end up in unhappy marriages or how people cope with marital problems. Yes. Yeah. I mean, actually, that's something that I work on a lot of how do people kind of reconcile being in unhappy marriages when marriage is meant to be the route to a good life. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's the example I want to talk about today is is basically about that. Let's go into it. Yeah, so marriage is a plot device in fiction, um, but it's a different one, I think, in, in the 16th and 17th century text that I'm looking at. Um, but I wanted to talk today about a short story by Marguerite de Navarre, who wrote a set of 72 short stories called The Heptameron. It was meant to be 100, but she died before she could finish them. Oh, no. So yeah, I wanted to talk about her 67th story, which is a portrait of marriage. So I'll introduce her a little bit first. So she is a very prominent writer of the French 16th century. She is a princess. She was the sister of François Ier, Francis I, the the Renaissance king, the big rival of Henry VIII. So she's his sister. She writes this set of short stories which she calls nouvelles like novellas in the first half of the 16th century and then they get published in various forms in the second half she also writes some spiritual poetry she's deeply religious she yeah she's quite prolific she actually has a kind of salon at her court that writers attend and you know writers and philosophers so she's a very important cultural figure in her age so the conceit of the heptameron is that it is it's modeled on an Italian an earlier Italian text called the Decameron, like so the Ten Days, yeah, um, by Boccaccio. But you know, it ended up being the Heptameron because she, she didn't finish it. <laughs> so it became Seven Days and then yeah. the beginning of the Eighth Day. And it, it's a little bit like the Canterbury Tales in that it's a group of people telling each other stories. So the idea is that they're going to tell each other ten stories over ten days because they are stranded. On, they're, they're travellers who end up being stranded together by inclement weather events, like a storm and a flood and that kind of thing. So they're stuck in this building together and they decide to pass the time by telling stories. Mm-hmm. Okay, and a lot of them are about marriage and adultery. So a classic example would be the 37th one, which is all about how a patient wife is really sad and stops doing all her housework because her husband is cheating on her and she considers killing him. Or she, you know, eventually she go, she finds him with his lover and she sets fire to the straw that they're sleeping on. But then she has a change of heart. That's just a kind of example of the kind of thing you find in the Heptameron. It's kind of personal conflicts that get resolved and then a kind of moral is drawn out of them. But the one I wanted to talk about, which I'm working on a little bit, is number 67. So number 67, the little subtitle of it is extreme love (laughs) extreme love extreme love in a strange place oh wow this sounds like some netflix dating show (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it's not gonna be what you expect okay okay so the story is there is this journey overseas to canada and on the way one of the travelers turns out to be a wrong and to put the whole boat in danger or the whole company of travelers in danger and so he gets marooned on an island and his wife is so upset and she loves him so much that she decides to be marooned with him right so that's one one aspect of her her true love yes and they're totally alone on this island with wild beasts and she ends up being this kind of very brave character in the story who like fights off wild beasts and tries to nourish her husband and take care of him but in the end he can't cope with the food of this desert island and also can't deal with the water so it says he became so swollen that in a short while he died um and so the woman is left alone and buried him 
and then you know she but she still defends her husband's corpse and oh, you know gosh. fighting off fighting off the wild beasts wow she's a real bear grills figure yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and then it says leading thus in regard to her body the life of a brute and in regard to her soul the life of an angel she passed her time in reading meditations prayer and horizons having a glad and happy mind in a wasted and half dead body wow but the end of the story is that because she's so pious god rewards her and the boat on its way back from Canada, sees her smoke and picks her up and takes her to La Rochelle, the Protestant stronghold. And then she lives a good life after that. I thought you were going to say that they dropped off like a hottie. And <laughs> no. She lived happily ever after. In- no, no. But her status as this incredibly dedicated wife makes her live a good life once she's back in France. So the story says, and when they had made known to the inhabitants the faithfulness and endurance of this woman, she was very honourably received by all the ladies who gladly sent their daughters to her to learn to read and write. In this honest calling, she maintained herself for the rest of her life. And then, you know, so the, so the other thing that happens in the Heptameron is that the characters then discuss what this means afterwards and they often have quite a different view of it so one of them says well every woman would do all that to save her husband's life and another one says I think the moral of this is that some husbands are such brutes that the women who live with them should not find it strange to live among their fellows so it's basically saying why she was so capable of living and defending herself from animals is because some husbands are like wild beasts right yeah so I I really love this I love this story of this Bear Grylls wife in on a desert island I really love that I really like it because it talks about the difficulties of marriage and, and what to do once you've got a bad husband yeah and I also just like that she ends up having the best of both worlds right because she gets to be this totally dedicated wife and do whatever it takes to be that person for her husband despite his moral iniquity but conveniently he then dies and then she lives a great life without him afterwards yeah arguably a better one wow because that that, that's a question like how how loyal should one be? And also if your husband asks you to do something that is contravening God's will, should you do it as a wife? Is a question that really vexes 17th century English conduct writers as well. That is it ever right to disobey your husband if he's asking you to do something truly heinous? But also I think widowhood, like it, it's a difficult stage for some women because it does give them more power and there's that argument that a lot of women accused of witchcraft are widows because they occupy this sort of empowered status without any checks and balances that would have been provided by a husband so I think that's a really interesting commentary on early modern lived experience of marriage for women yeah yeah and to go back to some of our earlier discussions I think that it's interesting that this is sort of a route to this woman living happily ever after in her own way as a result of but outside of a marriage But on the way there, this thing of her living in her body, the life of a beast, and in her soul, the life of an angel. Yeah, what an interesting idea. Yeah, shows again that mind-body split that early modern thinkers are dealing with as well. And super interesting in terms of ideals of femininity too, right? That she's sort of the stronger bodily and mentally and sort of religiously yeah she's there like shooting lions with her crossbow (laughs) well i'm glad that she even if fictionally lived um a happy life thereafter yeah so what example have you brought well i brought 
some letters that I found in Lancashire Record Office a number of years ago, which is in Preston. And I was there looking for other things about pregnancy and childbirth, but I came across this suite of letters. And it's from a man called Thomas Green to a woman called Jane Robinson. And unfortunately, despite my best efforts, I have absolutely no information about who these two people were. Um, you can gain some kind of context from the letters in that he was a suitor of hers and that presumably she has other suitors too. Um, so she's of marriageable age and she's literate. So we know that. But I, I haven't been able to trace anything more about um, her circumstances, which means that almost certainly she was not aristocratic, but of kind of middling sort. So he writes one letter in 1657 Presumably he's met her for the first time where they've crossed paths and he tells her, you know, your incomparable beauty um, sort of sets his heart on fire, spurs up his desires to take a full view of your admired person. Um, and he asks, grant me the happiness to enjoy your company. So he sends his first letter and it's not returned. And so he writes again and he sort of says, you know, I've noticed that you haven't responded to my letter um, he asked no longer be cruel. Admit me into the daily who honor you. So I guess that he's imagining her having all of these suitors coming and visiting her. And he says, you know, just write me one line and says, you know, he anticipates all of her concerns about them being married and says sort of, you know, what can love not solve? That he says, you know, if you suspect I will be too expensive, then love will soon point away to frugality. If she thinks he's full of folly, then love will provide discretion. If she thinks, and this is particularly interesting, he says, um, you know, if she's worried about incontinence, that is, I think, sex before marriage, love settles desire, he says. He asks her not to give wings to his fears that some other would intrude and engross those immunities that I desire to purchase. I think that's a particularly interesting idea that in these letters, you very strongly get an idea that like it's a marriage market that he's kind of bidding for real estate uh, or something. So this letter, like he's clearly sort of annoyed. He's stating his intentions rather forcefully, but it's pretty nice in tone. The next one, a week later. So this is on 30th <laughs> of December. Can't wait a week this. later, the 7th of January. He writes to her and he says, since I must write to one that hath scorned to receive an answer, my letters take it not in favor of you. It is not to you, but to this paper that I tell my thoughts. So disburden myself of them as that I may never more have them in mind except to detest their causer. Wow. It's like, you didn't text me back, so you're hideous and I hate you. Absolutely. And he says, you know, he's long considered the instability of her mind. And so she would never be a good match anyway. How could she possibly return his love with her hatred? Bearing in mind, he hasn't heard from her. So we don't know whether or not she hates him. And he just signs off his letter. Normally, early modern letters are sort of, you know, your loving servant, your devoted friend, etc. He signs off the letter saying... According to the quality of your respect or neglect, Thomas Green. <laughs> That's amazing. I know. What a great sign-off. And he includes <laughs> this incredibly long crap poem that sort of protests his love as well. So there's one line that says, Cupid it is that hath me shot that does not miss. Great victory got, so I in love am tormented. That makes me say my heart is dead for wanting you, your constancy. 
Um, that is a shit poem. It is a shit poem. Yeah. Okay, so there's one more letter. Oh, tell me. This is it. This is all we have. I love it. So then the tone is sweetness and light. Oh, really? He sort of very politely inquires and says, formally, I sent two letters to you, but they have not been responded. He says, "'Tis a paradox to me what should be the occasion of so strange and unexpected an alteration, uh, that he's, she's no cause to be so displeased. He asks her, is it about the mismatch in breeding and in fortune? Which case he protests that actually he has a lot of money and he thinks that actually they're of equal social status. And then he asks to be pardoned for his boldness. I think it's a bit late for that. And then he inquires, I think this is the juiciest detail. He says, you know, he's heard from somebody else that she's been receiving John Johnson and Thomas Hayworth as suitors. And he asks if she's engaged to them to just let him know and he'll desist. One imagines he probably didn't desist, but I just find there's something so modern in this exchange um, and so incredibly emotional from his side and what I'm particularly curious about is why they've been kept Um, I was just thinking that how do they end up in this archive did she keep them yeah you know all her life and they ended up in one of these trunks that ultimately get passed down and finally find that the materials find their way into an archive yeah I don't know. I mean, this is the frustrating thing about being a social historian and particularly using archives like these is one you almost always only have half of the story, only have his letters. I just don't know who they were and why they were kept. Maybe she returned them to him. Yeah. And he kept them because he thought he was a great writer and he was like, well, maybe someone in history will find my excellent poem. <laughs> uh, yeah. And also think that this woman was mistaken. Yeah. I mean, it's possible they're drafts. And he sent other ones. It's possible, as you say, that she kept them. You know, maybe she actually really did fancy him and there was a reason why she couldn't marry him. You know, maybe the family's fortunes had changed or she was instructed to marry someone else or she was already betrothed. Maybe she just really didn't want to get married. Maybe she kept this as proof. Like engagement is the same thing in a lot of ways as getting married in this period. And so maybe she's kind of keeping it as proof that they weren't courting. Um, as kind of evidence of her honor. Um, who knows the reason, but it's such a, an amazing snapshot into... It's wonderful. Mm. You can really imagine the whole story. I mean, I'm imagining this guy as such an undelectable individual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially because of the poem. I was also thinking, you know, when he's talking about his arrows, I was wondering if that's a reference to Cupid. Yes, I think so. Because in his poem that he's always talking about Cupid. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Bless you, John Green. 400 years ago. (laughs) John Green. What a guy. (laughs) And poor Jane Robinson. I hope that she married John Johnson or Thomas Hayworth and that they were excellent uh, husbands. It's great that he's like, oh, we could have such a good life together. You know, this is our path to the good life, Jane. This is our path to the good life. And I hope that she had a better life uh, without him. Yeah. what, what, What strikes me in both of these examples is they're both in different ways about women not necessarily getting that much out of marriage you know i wouldn't say that these are representative i'd also say that marguerite doesn't want i I doubt that she wants to suggest that marriage was a bad idea and and that you shouldn't get married in the first place no 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 and i don't think jane robinson thought that it was a bad idea either marguerite's stories are cynical about marriage and marriage is a kind of a comedy of errors in her work as well as 
kind of religious trial. Yeah. It's funny because I think one of the things that um, my work is, I think there's an assumption that in the past people went into marriage lightly and it happened to work out a lot of the time. I think one, there are a lot of very unhappy marriages in the past that one couldn't get out of. But two, I think it's wrong to assume that people didn't think about these things very carefully. There were different pressures, you know, I think much more social pressure then and religious pressure than there is now for most people. However, I do think this is a choice that people took very, very seriously and were very vexed over and really conditioned whether or not they lived a good life. Yeah, absolutely. Especially given the legal status of women in marriage. Absolutely. Because the first divorce isn't until the 1690s. And even then, it is just to disinherit illegitimate children. It's to provide him the opportunity to marry again. But, you know, I think it's important to remember that marriage is sort of inviolable in this period, apart from Henry VIII. So I guess if I were just to make a judgment about relationships and the good life from the sources that I normally work on in the Renaissance, then I would say that it is entirely possible to have a good life being single and in fact in many ways that is the better life in terms of it is more um godly it's more respectable however that is not the reality for most people and the tenor of one's relationship how compatible one's spouse is is very much a kind of a barometer for respectability in this period i think that for most of the people that i've been talking about today romantic relationships are very important to living the good life Yeah, I get the impression from what you've said that there were some happy and fulfilling relationships that are documented in the early modern period. And I guess that is something that I'll take away because I tend to think of romantic relationships and marriage as a bar (laughs) to the good life. Maybe not only in the early modern period, but certainly in early modern literature. But, you know, all humour aside, I do think that they are a kind of they're a problem and negotiating or enduring the problems of relationships and marriage is in some ways a way of living a good life if not a happy one but perhaps also there's a sense in which negotiating those issues can also lead to a good and a happy life it's also one of the ways in which the good life is social you know there is a social good life and that in an intimate setting in theory even in poetry and literature that might express skepticism about how possible it is there is also a way in which you can create the the importance of company and companionship to a good life yeah yeah yeah. thank you for listening to twice told tales written and presented by leah asbury and emma clausen and edited by fiona simon if you want to get in touch, please email us at twice told tales podcast at gmail.com and we're both on Twitter.